Satanism and witchcraft are often subjects which are snorted at when linked with unsolved cold cases. And while often this skepticism is justified, as these beliefs can cause an abundance of unsubstantiated rumours and even spark dangerous mass hysteria, there are times where many are left wondering, could there be a connection between occult practices and certain crimes? The question we must ask ourselves in these cases is not whether witchcraft or dark spiritualist ideas are real, but whether those committing these acts believe they are real, and may have carried out unspeakable actions in their name. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be exploring two cases with potential links to the occult. Jeanette De Palma. Jeanette Christine De Palma was born on August 3rd, 1956 in Jersey City, New Jersey. By all accounts, Jeanette was a regular middle-class girl, if not rather religious. She came from a large Italian family and was one of five daughters born to Salvador and Florence De Palma. She also had three brothers. There were some reports that Jeanette and her older sister, Gwendolyn, had drug issues that were fixed when the family converted to the Church of God. She was known to be involved in community work that aided drug addicts, and she had intentions of attending Bible college. Although she was seen by some to be a girl on the straight and narrow, Jeanette was described by others as something of a wild child. Some even noted that her religious stance was something that her parents believed in and cared about, but not necessarily what she believed in or what she cared about. Jeanette was 16 years old and working at a clothing store in August of 1972. On Monday the 17th, she left her home on Clearview Road in Springfield Township, New Jersey, telling her mother that she was taking the train to a friend's house. When she didn't arrive at her friend's place or come home that night, her parents alerted the local police department and filed a missing persons report. Six weeks later, on September 19th, a decomposed body was found in the cliffside of Springfield's quarry. It was discovered when a local Dogwater's pet brought the body's forearm to its owner. Several witnesses to the gruesome scene claimed that the skeletal remains, which were found face down, were surrounded by strange and possibly occult objects. Descriptions from onlookers vary, but the most common statement is that the body was found inside a coffin-shaped perimeter made of branches and logs. Within this were makeshift wooden crosses. Other Springfield residents claimed that the body was found lying on a pentagram and that it was surrounded by the mutilated corpses of animals. However, this claim has been denied by local law enforcement. The cliff where the body was found was known to locals for several decades as the Devil's Teeth adding to the idea that this case was wrapped up in witchcraft. The body was identified as Jeanette's using her dental records. She still had on her tan trousers, navy shirt, and flip-flops 
the clothes she was last seen wearing. The autopsy, unfortunately, did not reveal much to the authorities. Her remains and clothing show no signs of bone fractures, bullet wounds, or knife wounds, and no drug paraphernalia was found on or near the body. Unusually high amounts of lead were found in the remains, but this could not be explained by the coroner or authorities. Although it's unclear why, the coroner suspected that the 16-year-old girl had died from strangulation, leading law enforcement to launch a homicide investigation that was short-lived and, honestly, lacking in effort. Early on in the investigation into Jeanette's callous slaying, law enforcement received a tip regarding a homeless man living in the woods near where the body was located. The drifter was known to locals as Red, and he allegedly fled his camp in the woods after Jeanette's disappearance. While this does seem like a lead that may have been worth investigating, the Union County's prosecutor's office quickly determined that Red had nothing to do with Jeanette's case. It's unknown how they came to this decision. Despite this setback, investigators continued to look into the case. However, it wasn't long before leads began to dry up, its cold case status exacerbated by the fact that none of Jeanette's friends and acquaintances gave consistent information in regards to her lifestyle. Two weeks after Jeanette's body was found, newspapers, including the Star Ledger and the New York Daily Times, began to report that she was perhaps a victim of occult sacrifice, a practice that was possibly carried out by Satanists or a local coven operating in the nearby Watchung Reservation, a nature reserve in Union City, New Jersey. Rumors swirled about Jeanette and her demise, and whisperings about the Watchung Reservation continued, long after her case grew cold. In the late 90s and early 2000s, a magazine named Weird NJ began receiving anonymous letters regarding Jeanette's case. The editor and co-founder, a man named Mark Moran, began investigating the case, noting odd details like allegations that the Springfield Police Department had lost or destroyed the case file. In regard to this, the police department maintained that the fire was lost due to the flooding that occurred as a result of 1999's Hurricane Floyd. However, unknown sources allege that there is still a copy of the file in existence. Mark Moran went on to team up with one of his magazine's correspondents, Jesse Pollock, to write a book about the case. Their research led them to conclude that there was the possibility of a cover-up, that the case had connections to other unsolved cases, and that there were multiple previously unknown suspects. In an article on the Weird NJ website which discusses the case and the book written about it, it's noted that no one who was interviewed by the authors in connection with the case was willing to go on record or have their name published. Not even law enforcement. The general consensus of locals was that the killer was still at large, the crime was cult-related, and that somehow the police were involved in covering up the crime. Testing of Jeanette's clothing in 1973 revealed that no drugs or poisons were found on her blouse, trousers, or underwear. No foreign hairs were found either. However, stains in her underwear, bra, blouse, and trousers were found, but they could not be used for blood or semen examinations because they were too badly degraded. The original patrolman who found the body, Donald Schwert, has told news outlets that he doesn't buy into the occult theory 
stating his belief that Jeanette passed away from a drug overdose. Some online sleuths also share this belief, suspecting that the occult themes of the case were simply a red herring. It is not uncommon for so-called occult practices to be labeled the culprit in cases where, in truth, there is little evidence for such accusations. Other people, however, including Jeanette's nephew, believe she met her end at the hands of someone else. In 2019, a Union County judge rejected the request to perform DNA tests on Jeanette's clothing. This request came from a retired private investigator who filed a lawsuit in an attempt to pressure the Union County Prosecutor's Office to test the clothing. The request was denied because the private investigator couldn't bring the suit as he had, quote, no legal relationship with De Palma, her estate, or anyone else who may have a stake in the outcome of the case. The unsolved mystery of Jeanette's case is still open, and many hope that there will one day be answers to a case that feels shrouded in uncertainty. Anyone with any information can contact Lieutenant Jose Vandas at 908-358-3048. Charles Walton. Charles Walton was born to Charles and Emma Walton on May 12, 1870. He was an agricultural worker who'd lived his entire life in Lower Quinton, a civil parish in Warwickshire in the United Kingdom. In 1945, Charles was a widower, having lost his wife in 1927 and lived with his niece, Edith Isabel Walton, who was 33 years old. After her mother passed away in 1915, when she was just three, Charles had taken her in. Although Charles was solitary and seen as an eccentric man, he was also looked upon fondly, with many describing him as polite and pleasant. He garnered a reputation for himself of a man who was good with dogs and even better with horses. He was somewhat reclusive and did not actively socialize, but he had no feuds with anyone in the village nor had he any ill will towards anyone. For the last nine months prior to his demise in February of 1945, he had been working for a local farmer named Alfred Potter. Charles worked the farm when it wasn't raining and picked his own hours due to his health condition. He suffered from arthritis. He often worked around four days a week. On Valentine's Day of 1945, Charles headed out as normal with his pitchfork and slash hook. Witnesses saw him make his way through the churchyard between 9 and 9.30 a.m. On this particular day, Charles's job was to slash hedges in a field known as Hillground on the slopes of Meon Hill. Meanwhile, his niece, Edith, was working as a printer assembler at the Royal Society of Arts. She expected Charles to be home at around 4 p.m. However, when Edith returned home at 6, she quickly realized her uncle wasn't there. Given his solitary habits, she did not believe that Charles was simply out at the pub or with a friend, so she went next door to the house of her neighbor and they together made their way to the farm where Charles worked. Charles's employer, Alfred Potter, told Edith that he had seen her uncle that day slashing the hedges. They set off to the area where Potter had last seen his employee and the trio discovered the mutilated body of 74-year-old Charles Walton, a sight so horrific that Edith could not stop screaming 
and had to be led away by her neighbor. Another man who was passing was asked to alert the authorities while Alfred Potter stood to guard the body until police arrived. This crime scene was gruesome. Charles had been beaten with his own walking cane, his neck cut with the slash hook, the weapon still buried in the wound. The prongs of the pitchfork pinned him to the ground either side of his neck. His shirt was ripped open, his fly was open, and his trousers were unfastened. Some articles about the case also report that there was a cross carved into his chest, although the coroner's reports does not mention any such thing. The wait for authorities was long. While the first policeman, P.C. Lomersnay, arrived on the scene at 7.05 p.m., members of the Stratford-upon-Avon CID did not arrive until much later. Professor Webster of the West Midlands Forensic Laboratory did not show up until 11.30 p.m. Charles's body was finally moved from the field at half past one in the morning. The following day, Potter was questioned by authorities. He stated that he had lived on the farm for five years and had known Charles all that time, although he had only recently become his employer in the last nine months. He told police about Charles's habit of having lunch at 11 a.m. and then working through till four. During the morning of February 14th, Potter had been at the local pub, the College Arms, with another farmer until noon. Soon, the police requested help from Scotland Yard. They requested that they bring an Italian translator, as they believed the perpetrator was possibly one of the men being held at the nearby Italian and German prison camp that had been set up at the start of the war. Scotland Yard sent Chief Inspector Robert Fabian and Detective Sergeant Albert Webb to assist with the investigation. The pair arrived on February 16th, accompanied by D.S. Sanders, who spoke fluent Italian. Alfred Potter quickly became the investigator's prime suspect. They asked the first policeman on the scene, who knew the Potters well, to keep a close eye on the couple in case they said or did anything incriminating. Sanders, meanwhile, interrogated some of the Italians at the nearby camp, which was more of a free Rome prison than anything, where inhabitants could come and go as they pleased. However, none of the men there ever became serious suspects. Charles's post-mortem revealed that his trachea had been cut, with bruising to his chest and several broken ribs. He also had defensive wounds, cuts to his left hand and bruising on the back of his right hand and forearm. The time of his death was estimated between 1 and 2 p.m. A few days later, on February 20th, P.C. Lomersnay mentioned to Potter that the police were hoping to get fingerprints from the weapons. Potter replied that he had handled the weapons and had told the authorities as such. He had touched them because Harry Beasley, Edith's neighbor, had told him to check that Charles was dead. Potter also told P.C. Lomersnay that the slaying of Charles was, quote, the work of a fascist man from the camp. A short time later, a serviceman arrived at the farm and told Potter and Lomersnay that an Italian had been detained by military police, sparking giddiness and glee in Potter and his wife, something which the PC found deeply suspicious. Authorities took statements from over 500 Lower Quinton residents. They also brought in Royal Engineers who used mine detectors to search the area in an attempt to find Charles's missing pocket watch. On the day after his body was found, authorities had sent out a description of his pocket watch to jewelers and pawnbrokers, but it was not located. 
no clues were found while utilizing the mine detectors. Chief Inspector Robert Fabian believed Alfred Potter was the culprit for several reasons. Potter left the crime scene just as the police started arriving. He had previously been complaining about the cold, but PC Lomersnay believed that he appeared more worried and anxious than anything else. Potter also claimed that he would have gone to see Charles on the day he died, but he had to attend to a calf who was stuck in a nearby ditch. However, authorities learned that the calf had actually died the day before Charles's attack. Potter had also made several statements about when he'd last seen Charles working, and the statements changed every time. First, he said he'd seen him working at a distance at 12.10, then 12.15, then 12.20, ultimately saying he'd seen someone at 12.30 p.m. Law enforcement also noticed that they had no notes about him telling them that he had handled the weapons. Harry Beasley refuted the claims that he'd told Potter to check whether Charles was dead because it was obvious that he was. He also added that Potter did not touch the weapons while in his presence. Despite all this information, the police could not find a real motive and they did not uncover any solid damning evidence. Two former workers of Potter's stated that he sometimes had difficulty paying their wages, leading some to believe that there was perhaps a dispute between Potter and Charles over money. Edith told authorities that she had not heard Charles say that he had lent anyone money and had not seen any IOUs. Without any evidence to back up this idea that Charles was owed money or of any dispute between him and his employer, the authorities hit a dead end. The village of Lower Quinton has always been rife with tales of paganism and witchcraft. It is said that the devil attempted to throw a large clod of earth to smother the recently built abbey in the town, but that the Bishop of Worcester noticed and with the power of prayer, he altered the devil's aim, causing the earth to fall short of the abbey, which led to form Meehan Hill, the very place where Charles's body was found. These stories remained just as prevalent in 1945 as they were in prior centuries. Only one year before the slaying of Charles Walton, a high profile trial took place in Lower Quinton of a woman named Helen Duncan, who said she could summon spirits, which breached 1735's Witchcraft Act. For some time before his death, rumors had circulated about Charles. Some villagers were suspicious of him, believing that he used toads to sabotage the previous year's harvest, whilst others noted his unnatural affinity with animals. We have already discussed Charles's affinity with dogs and horses, but the whispering said he could tame wild beasts and that birds would feed from his hand and avoid eating the seeds from his land at his request. A book named Folklore, Old Customs and Traditions in Shakespeare Land, which was published in 1929, told of a Charles Walton who, in 1885, had seen a phantom black dog on the road while walking home for several consecutive nights. On the final night, he'd seen the dog with a headless woman. Upon returning home, he found that his sister had passed away. Black dogs have long since been a part of British folklore, signifying death and having satanic associations. It is pointed out, however, that there are no records to show that Charles had a sister who died in 1885. 
In the 1970s, when Chief Inspector Robert Fabian wrote his own autobiography, he referred to the Charles Walton case as the witchcraft murder, and said that the case was clearly the ghostly climax of a pagan rite. He also stated that he had an encounter with a black dog on Mian Hill one evening. Although there are reports that a black dog was strung up next to Charles' body, these are unsubstantiated. 15 miles from Lower Quinton, an 80-year-old woman named Anne Tennant living in Long Compton was brutally slain in 1875. Rumour has it that she was killed in the exact same manner that Charles was, but this has since been disproven. While a pitchfork was used in Anne's case too, that's where the similarities between both cases end. A man named James Haywood killed Anne in front of several witnesses after claiming she was a witch. A BBC reporter in 2014 claimed that they had faced a community response when asking Lower Quinton residents about Charles's case. They noticed that the villagers were tight-lipped. The landlord of the College Arms, the pub where Potter had been drinking on the morning of February 14th, 1945, told the reporter, quote, "'Talking about it would just upset people, and there's no sense in alienating people in a small village like this.'" He also added, in cases like this, there's always someone that knows something. Someone knows what happens, but for the sake of relatives and for not obsessing people, no one will say. In 1960, Charles's missing pocket watch was located in his outhouse, which had been thoroughly searched in the weeks following his death, leading police to believe that the perpetrator had returned it for unknown reasons. As of today, the gruesome murder of Charles Walton continues to go unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.